when somebody is telling you to be afraid of something with relatively ambiguous subjective evidence, we all need to learn to take that with a grain of salt, a big old grain of salt, and understand that these people are trying to manipulate you. Radio Mano Papachango. doing out there it's that time again whatever time it is where you are that's what time it is uh thank you to everybody who's been signing up on patreon i really appreciate it i i you know when danny told me he was shutting down fun what you love i thought oh i'm screwed there goes you know a big chunk of um my monthly podcast funding uh, but a lot of you have gone over and signed up on Patreon. I don't know if you're people who were on Fun What You Love and you've come over or you're new people. I don't know. But I just want to take a minute to thank some of you. I mean, these are all people who, who are uh, pledging over 10 bucks a month. I'm not going to say your full name because I don't know if you would want that. Um, but John, Jari, Carl, Jeff, Svein, uh, Christopher, Bev, Sunil, Craig, Alex, J-W, no, J-G, J-J, G-J. <laughs> you, you know who you are. Uh, I think it's Glenda is actually the person's name. Holly. Oh, some Irish person with a name I don't know how to say. E-O-I-N. Ian, maybe. Brad and uh, Ash and Robert. Thank you, everybody, for uh, signing up for Patreon. That's super cool. Super cool. Gives me faith in humanity a little bit that there are people who uh, actually choose to pay for something that uh, I'm giving away for free. That's uh, that's a sweet thing. And that funding helps me do things like fly up to Amsterdam, where I'll be on the 12th of September, hanging out with Wim Hof uh, for, I hope, all day. But I don't know how, how much time he's got for me, but I'm going to be up there with him on the 12th. And I hope to record a podcast. All right, I'm not crazy. Not the whole podcast, but maybe just the intro or maybe, I don't know how much, but in sitting in an ice bath with Wim Hof, <clears throat> which is a sentence I never expected to say. Uh, I'd imagine saying sitting in a jacuzzi with, you know, Beyonce or something, but an ice bath, ice bath with Wim Hof, that's that's something else. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for making that possible, all of you who are funding the podcast through patreon.com or by using my Amazon thing. Also, uh, those of you who are buying T-shirts, that's very cool. Um, don't forget, you can get uh, T-shirts at chrisryanphd.com. Go to the store, and my mom, Julie, will send you whatever the hell you want. We've got Tangentially Speaking shirts. We've got Sex at Dawn shirts. we got Civilized to Death shirts. we got some shirts that say Paleo Modern I don't know. I bought. Oh, I know why. I bought those thinking I'd take them to this Paleo FX conference I was going to, and Cassie was going to sell them. I'd, you know, it's one of those typical dumb business ideas that people like I come up with. People like I, people like me, come up with. 
and then never follow through on. So we ended up with a bunch of these paleo modern shirts. But if you consider yourself paleo modern and who doesn't, maybe get yourself a paleo modern shirt from Julie, my mom. Tell her I said hi. Tell her you said hi. She knows I say hi. Okay, this podcast is with David Lay. He's a sexologist, and he's um, he's my favorite kind of person. He's a guy who just doesn't give a shit, and uh, there aren't many of them left. So this conversation is wide open, free-ranging, no holds barred, no taboos. We talk about whatever the hell comes up, and um, yeah, we beat it like a dead horse, if that's an expression. Um He's I mean, when I say he doesn't give a shit, I mean that in the best possible sense. He is uninhibited. He is unshamed. He is uncowed. He is a courageous, open thinker. And um, luckily for all of us, he's thinking about sex. So his uh, recent book, it's just coming out now, actually, is I think it's called How to Watch Porn Without Being a Dick or something like that. Uh, a man, here it is. Ethical porn for dicks, a man's guide to responsible viewing pleasure. So there you go. You can get that on amazon.com through my portal, of course, or at your favorite bookstore. If you are trying to hold back the tides of commerce from wiping out independent bookstores, which I applaud. Um, all right. What else is going on? I was just swimming in the ocean about 10 minutes ago which might explain why I sound more wide awake than I am, probably. And I was thinking about how, I mean, there I was, I, I jump off these rocks, I'm swimming in this open ocean, and I was thinking about how the movie Jaws has really fucked up my life. A lot of you are probably too young to remember. I think Jaws came out in the early 70s, maybe, mid-70s. But it's sort of become a cultural icon, so you've probably heard about it. It's, you know, the one with the big shark that comes and kills people and attacks boats and all that. And, um, yeah, I was in an impressionable age then. I grew up around water. We always had a swimming pool, and, you know, I spent a lot of time swimming. I'm, I'm a good swimmer and comfortable in the water and all that. Um, but I saw Jaws when I was, what, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And... Um, yeah, it fucked me up, man. And now I am 54 years old. And still, every time I'm swimming in the ocean uh, without, you know, a mask and so I can see what's going on, I sort of, you know, there's maybe 5% of me that's expecting to be, to feel, you know, the, the bump of a shark ripping my leg off at any minute because I know their teeth are so sharp you can't even feel them. It just feels like you get punched. Um. And that's fucked up. That's that's had a serious effect on the quality of my life because I've been I've swum a lot in the ocean, but I don't swim in the open ocean like, you know, swim in laps in a pool. I don't like go out and just swim and, you know, for exercise and, you know, all that, frankly, because that that gnawing fear has has sort of ruined that experience for me. And. I've been thinking about that in light of this book that I am finishing, praise be Allah, God willing. Uh, what else could I say? You know, Buddha, if Buddha allows. Um, because a lot of this book is about how the Hobbesian view of the universe, that, that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and, you know, every life is a struggle for survival, and yeah, blah, blah, all that stuff. 
That's like the equivalent of seeing Jaws when you're a little kid. It's a fucking lie. It's a pernicious lie that infects our entire culture. And it twists the way we experience our lives. And even if you're able to think your way out of it, as I have with Jaws, I know it's just a movie. I know the chances of me being attacked by a shark in the five minutes I'm swimming off the coast of Gran Canaria are, you know, roughly equivalent to, you know, being attacked by a grizzly bear in the Anchorage airport. I know it's ridiculous. And yet there it is. We hear these stories when when we're young and our brains form around them. And then even when the story gets removed, there's that pocket, that empty pocket of fear that used to, you know, that was filled with something you believed, even if only for a few minutes. Um, People talk about having a God-shaped hole. A lot of atheists and agnostics I've spoken to say they have a God-shaped hole in their brains because... They believed in God when their brains formed, and then you remove the God, and there's just that empty space there. <sighs> I'm not going anywhere with this. I just think it's uh, interesting to think about how these stories shape us in ways that are um, difficult, if not impossible, to, to fight our way out of. I mean, I was just writing about this yesterday in, in the section about kids. Um, I'm writing a chapter about how we raise kids and how that's different from uh, hunter-gatherers and all that. Um, Here, I'll read you some of it. If modern children are being denied the oxygen of experience, it's largely because well-intentioned parents have been led to believe that the world is simply too dangerous a place for unsupervised play. Wherever and whenever possible, parents are told that all danger must be eliminated from their children's lives. We wipe our little miracles with antibacterial solutions, lead them around on protective leashes and zealously protect them from potentially threatening strangers. But as is so often the case, while we're busily defending ourselves from largely false dangers, our struggles tend to create more problems than they solve. Despite what endless media reports of abducted, murdered innocents may suggest, kids face less danger today than when you and I were catching frogs in the woods or playing under the street lamps. The overall child mortality rate in the United States has never been lower than it is right now. In 1935, for example, there were roughly 450 deaths for every 100,000 American kids between one and four years of age. Today, that number rarely reaches 30. So it's down from 450 to under 30. Mortality rates are down by almost half since 1990, and for a kid between 5 and 14 years old, the chances of premature death are around 1 in 10,000. There's an article in the Washington Post that I quote here. He says, kids are dying less, they're being killed less, they're getting hit by cars less, and they're going missing less frequently, too. The likelihood of any of these scenarios is both historically low and infinitesimally small. Bottom line, if it was safe enough for you to play unsupervised outside when you were a kid, it's even safer for your own children to do so today. But I know there are a lot of parents who are listening to me right now, and you are like me, swimming in the ocean. You're saying, okay, I hear that, I understand that, but it terrifies me to think that my kid's out there alone, vulnerable. 
You're imagining the sharks in the dark water, just like I am. But the fact is that you and I grew up, I mean, shit, I grew up, My I would go and play and there was a fire siren that rang at six o'clock, at six o'clock every night. That's when I knew I had to be home for dinner. So wherever I was, often in the woods somewhere, I'd hear that and be like, ah, shit, okay, I got to go. And I'd run home and I'd be home in time for dinner. Fine. My mother wasn't worried about where I was. She didn't know where I was. Nobody knew where I was. Kids don't do that today. Kids are, kids are driven from this activity to that activity. There's always an adult there. Everything's supervised. Everything's structured. Everything's goddamn controlled. Where's the uncontrolled play? Where's the chaos? There's no fucking chaos. How are kids supposed to figure out who they are if there's no chaos? Kids need to figure shit out on their own. They don't need adults telling them, don't do this, don't do that. They get enough of that shit. Anyway, um, and I'm not criticizing parents here because, you know, you're, you can no more eliminate that fear from your life than I can not think about sharks when I'm in the water. It's just a question of, you know, trying to control it. But it's there. I have a very good friend, uh, wonderful guy. He and his wife and their two sons were out hiking um, probably two years ago now. I may have mentioned this on the podcast before. And they were hiking and uh, they were near a waterfall. And their younger son leaned up against a fence. And somebody, the fence was broken, but somebody had just sort of placed the cross piece there. And the kid just disappeared over the cliff. I think he fell 50 or 60 feet, landed in the stream below. They watched that happen. Now, how did they react? Would never go hiking again? Never let the kid go out again? You know, grab those two kids and keep them in the house at all times, away from all danger? Fuck no. Luckily, the kid survived. Actually, he's, he's fine, uh, miraculously. Um, but these people go hiking every fucking weekend. They're always out, and their older son goes out on his own. They've made the very courageous decision that they cannot protect their kids from every danger, and they don't want to because that's not life. And they'd prefer to have their kids face some danger and live a life than try to eliminate all danger and end up being, you know, little pansies. Nothing against the pansies out there. Some people think I'm a pansy, I'm sure. Um, anyway, overcoming fear. It's hard to do when your culture is constantly telling you that you should be afraid, uh, constantly coming up with new things to be afraid of, new terrorists and new threats, threats everywhere. Oh, my God. So another thing that's happening recently is a good friend of mine who uh, whose opinion I respect very much has encouraged me to check out Sam Harris. And so I've been listening to some Sam Harris podcasts and uh, watched uh, some interviews with him and uh, interesting guy. And I'd love to have him on the podcast at some point. I think we'd uh, have very interesting conversation um, because I don't agree with a lot of what he's saying, but I certainly respect him and, um, you know, and I may be wrong and he would be the guy to tell me when I am. But uh, one of the things I've been hearing is his sort of I just his most recent podcast is where he's reading from 
uh, publication put out by, I think it's ISIS or Al-Qaeda, I don't know. And there's this essay in there about why we hate you in the West. And so he's reading from that. And the, the whole podcast, I think it's 45 minutes, is just him sort of, you know, holding up this publication as evidence in support of his contention that Islam is inherently evil and we need to eliminate these groups militarily as soon as possible by whatever means are necessary. Um, and that anyone who makes the argument that the United States is in any sense partially responsible for this is being naive and ignoring the evidence that's right in front of us. I guess to me, that sort of feels like, uh, you know, like he's a guy who's so focused on putting out a fire that he thinks any discussion of what started the fire or what fuels it is just complete foolishness. Um, you know, it's fine to make the point that these jihadists that he's quoting are clearly in a war against the West, but it doesn't then follow that this war wasn't sparked and fueled by decades of U.S. and British foreign policy that's resulted in generations of humiliated and unemployed men, horribly oppressive regimes um, like the Shah of Iran, you know, the Saudis, the Pakistanis, all of whom, by the way, were created, trained, armed and funded by the U.S., a huge transfer of wealth out of the Middle East to the West by way of these torturing regimes that we put into position all over the region uh, so that we could have easy access to the oil and get it out of the country without um, having to pay free market prices for it. And, uh, you know, these are people who send their kids to Western universities. If they get sick, they come to Western hospitals. Uh, they're completely separated from their citizenry. Um so they're really, it's just colonialism, you know, back in the old days, the British installed their own people to run the show. Now what we do is we cultivate people within the country who have more allegiance to the West than they do to their own people. And we, you know, fund them and, and send them arms and teach them how to torture and, um, that's how we do colonialism now. And we say, well, we're not there. It's not us. It's, you know, that's the Shah of Iran. That's uh, the, the Saud family. You know, well, yeah, well, the Saud family was nothing until the British and the Americans created them and created that false state. Um, you know, and then there's the whole question of Israel and the uh, occupation of uh, land that uh, we can argue who has a right to it, but nobody, I think, would try to argue that that hasn't been a complete disaster in terms of relations between the West and uh, people of the Middle East. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, I agree with some of what Sam Harris is saying about the state of Islam at this moment and the intentions of the jihadis and the nature of the jihad that they're waging. But I think that it's disingenuous to ignore the source of these things and to ignore the historical context in which um, this fire erupted. Um, and it's not legitimate to say we can't talk about what caused the fire or what's fueling the fire. We just need to put out the fire because, you know, as any fireman will tell you, you got to know what kind of fire it is to know how to put it out. You don't throw water on an oil fire. And if there's ever an oil fire, this is it. Uh, just yesterday, there was a story in the New York Times about 
40 innocent people who were killed in Yemen um, by bombs that were dropped from U.S. jets. The bombs are U.S. made. They're flown by U.S. trained pilots. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're Saudis, but <laughs> what's the difference, right? The people who are killed, they, they see USA on the bomb fragments. They see American-built jets flying over and dropping the bombs, and they know that the guys inside those jets came and trained in the U.S., or the U.S. pilots went to Saudi Arabia and taught them how to do this. So as far as they're concerned, they're being killed by America. That's not even counting all the fucking people who are being killed by the drones that are blowing up all over the place. Now, these, the Saudis, by the way, they bombed a hospital run by Doctors Without Borders, a school and a potato chip factory. So what the fuck's going on there? Right. And this is the kind of stuff that's been going on for decades in the Middle East and Latin America. If you don't know about this stuff, really, it's worth educating yourself, because if you don't know what American foreign policy has been and you just think like we're out there defending freedom then you're really missing it. You really don't know what's going on because what's going on is neocolonialism. It's been going on for a long time. And, uh, you know, they don't hate us for our freedoms. This is what Sam Harris is saying. They hate us for our freedoms. What George Bush said and everyone laughed at is true. And again, yes, Yes. Right now, what that magazine is saying, what the author of that essay that Sam Harris was reading is saying, yes, that's true. But to ignore the context, to ignore where this comes from is, I think, disingenuous. And um, so anyway, I would love to talk with him about it. Uh, maybe when I'm in the States, I'll try to get in touch with him and see if we can sit down together and talk about these things because he does seem like someone that you can disagree with respectfully. And uh, I certainly have a lot of respect for the guy. Okay. I'm going to play you out, out or in. I tried to say out and in at the same time there um, with a song that uh, really gets to what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> this is called if I had a rocket launcher it's by a Canadian, uh, Bruce Coburn, C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N, I believe. I'll put a link, as always, on uh, this episode page. Um, and it's, uh, you guys probably don't know this, uh, except for people as old as me or older who are listening to this, but there is a classic song called If I Had a Hammer. And it was sort of a hippie happy song about uh, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening, I'd hammer all over this world. And it's about building a peaceful, better tomorrow. It was a very optimistic, beautiful song. Uh, I, I encourage you to look it up and check it out. It's, uh, I think it was Woody Guthrie, I believe, who sang it initially. Um, anyway, this is a takeoff on that song, sort of a a rejoinder, and it's a much angrier, much more hopeless kind of song, and it's very much about this American foreign policy that I've been talking about. This song, I think, was recorded in the 80s, probably, when the, you know, crime against humanity du jour was happening in Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Chile. Um, there's a long history of these kinds of uh, murderous shenanigans that the United States has been involved in in so many different ways. Um, 
And if you, like I say, if you don't know about this, then it's very hard for you to understand why things are happening the way they are. So especially for you young folks for whom this kind of stuff seems like uh, ancient history, I really encourage you to check out, you know, what was going on in Central America in the 80s. Um, you know, I was very tangentially involved in some of that in, uh, when I was in Guatemala and southern Mexico in the early 80s. Um, that what happened in El Salvador, the death squads and all that kind of stuff, because that's playing out today. That's playing out with the immigration issue. That's playing out with the, the Central American gangs. That's playing out with the, the whole war on drugs and the, the situation in Mexico. It's all related to that. It's all generated by that. So, um, yeah, it's good to know your history to understand what's going on in the present. This is If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks for listening. I will catch you somewhere down the road. Here comes the helicopter Second time today Everybody scatters and hopes it goes away How many kids they've murdered Only God can say
here we are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, where I don't know what happens here. I know meth is, is made in the desert. That's the only thing I know. <laughs> Breaking Bad. They're selling Breaking Bad stuff at the airport. It's oh, incredible. Oh, yeah, they've got Breaking Bad fake meth candy that you can buy. It's blue, I take it. Yeah, That's yeah. nice. That's nice. And then you get arrested at the airport trying mm -hmm. to take it somewhere. Mm -hmm. They actually banned the show Cops from coming to Albuquerque because they had filmed so many episodes here that uh, it was making the police department look bad. So they, the, the city council said no more cops can be filmed in, in, in Albuquerque. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I was watching the local news last night here at the Days Inn at the airport. This <laughs> little shout out to the Days Inn by the airport, which is pretty nice. This this place has the fastest internet I've ever found in a hotel in America. Wow. You know, isn't that funny? You stay in you stay in crappy little motels and you get good internet. You stay in a, a nice hotel and you got to pay extra for internet. Yeah, and, and you got to pay extra for fast internet. What the hell? Yeah, I that shit bugs me. Yeah, although it doesn't bug me as much as all the free shit that rich people get. Yeah. You know, that goes the other way. Like when I was at TED and I saw the, the swag bags that yeah, all these right. millionaires are getting. Right, it's right. like, they don't need free stuff. Absolutely. Anyway, I'm here with David Lay. Dr. David Lay. Do you call yourself doctor? No. I, guess. I, like, I like it when people call me Dr. Lay when I have not asked them to. Other than that, <laughs> I introduce myself as David. David. David is a, a sex expert who uh, also a clinical psychologist here in Albuquerque. And um, let's see, your first book was Insatiable Wives, or was that yeah. your second book? Yeah, that was my first book. And then my second book was Myth of Sex Addiction, which you reviewed and endorsed. Mm. Very nice of you. Um, Insatiable Wives came out right around the same time as Sex at Dawn. And uh, you and I talked about a lot of the same research. Um, and it was very cool. It was, it was neat that you and I were both out there. Um, talking about the same stuff at the same time. Mm. And uh, I just watched in amazement as, as Sex of Dawn really took off. Very cool. Yeah, strange. Se seemed like there was a cultural wave. Mm -hmm. and Big time. Yeah, we just happened to catch it. Um, and now you have a new book coming out. Mm -hmm. When? So the new book is coming out uh, this fall, probably. It will drop um, around October, November. Um, the ebook version should be out this summer, we think. And it's called Ethical Porn for Dicks, A Man's Guide to Responsible Viewing Pleasure. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked at the table of contents last night. You sent me yeah, the yeah. PDF. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, uh, if the yeah. table of contents is any guy. Yeah. I, you know, I wrote the book. This is like the second or third version that I've written, written of this, because my first one was just very kind of academic-y, the mm. way I normally write. And... And I went through a period where I said, look, you know, I want guys to read this, and, and I don't think they're going to read this the way I did, the way I'd written it. So I went back and I really rebooted it, and, and I wrote each section imagining that I'm sitting and having a beer talking to guys. Right. And instead of talking about research, and instead, of, instead of talking about statistics and psychological theory and shit like that, I said, you know, what would it be like to just sit and talk with a guy while we drank about this and answer questions? And so... I ended up, and then I reached out to guys all over the world, and I said, what questions do you have about porn use? And, and I sat down and wrestled with them. And, and the thing is that guys, um, guys are aware that there is such a controversy around porn use, and they're a little nervous about it. They're nervous about getting in trouble at work. They're nervous about getting in trouble with their wife or their girlfriend for watching porn. Um, they're nervous about you know, accidentally downloading child porn and getting in trouble for it. 
And even though women are using porn at increasing levels, they don't experience problems or consequences as a result of porn use the way guys do. So I wrote this book for guys, and everybody told me, you're not going to publish it. Everybody said, no, nobody's going to publish a book for guys because guys don't read. Hopefully, this will kind of prove them wrong. Are there any pictures in it? Actually, it's illustrated with a whole bunch of really dirty fucking pornographic pictures. <laughs> um, except that they are all what I call petroporn. They're, um, uh, they're drawings from, uh, based on cave art and petroglyphs from around the world, including some right here. There, there, there are some up in the desert about five miles from where we're sitting that are dirty pictures of guys with get big dicks and, and gangbangs and threesomes um, that are these cave art drawings that have been drawn on, the, on, on walls for thousands of years. No and, yeah, and so I illustrated the book with these pictures to really drive home the point that the pornography of today um, is the cave art of 5,000 years ago. Um, you know, you're in New Mexico and, you know, you see Cocapelli around a lot, a lot. Cocapelli is this kind of mystic sort of sort of a flute player who's also kind of oh. like a Loki trickster guy. Right, exactly. right, yeah. The thing is, the, the pictures of, 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 of him, uh, of Cocapelli, that you see commercially are all sanitized because normally he's drawn with a big dick. Right. But they cut off his penis to sell him to the general public. Well, so I illustrate the book with including pictures of Cocapelli, penis and all. You know, when you get sold to the general public, <laughs> cutting off your dick is one of the first things they want to do. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Poor Cocapelli. Yeah, it's one of the things I yeah, it's one of the things I write and talk about is that you know power when men's sexuality becomes public, when men's sexuality becomes known. Um, it's almost always a bad thing. Right. And uh, so as a result, men don't have much of a role model of what kind of sexual being they want to be. One of the things I ask a lot of people, I'll, I'll ask you, Chris, who is your sexual role model? What man do you <laughs> look up to and think that is the kind of sexual being I would like to be? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it's probably my Uncle Dan, yeah? who, right. who I just interviewed on this podcast oh, cool. a, a week ago. Um, I haven't posted it yet. By the time this one goes up, it will have been posted. Um, but uh, yeah, it would it would be him, I guess. Why? Well, I would say my uncle Dan is um, unrepentantly non-monogamous, which I find uh, compelling. Not just because of the non-monogamy, um, but because of the the lack of shame. Mm -hmm. He he sort of refuses to be cowed by the the disapproval of others, and um, and he's he's ruthlessly honest. He's uh, you know scrupulously honest with the women in his life. So consequently, he's and he's in his seventies, and um, he's been like this for twenty years, since twenty-five years or so. Uh, since he had a, a very intense experience where his best friend um, died, his airplane blew up in the air. And uh, so at that point, my uncle just sort of was like, what am I doing? And he mm -hmm. just um, changed his life and started living with uh, extreme honesty. And, and it's cool. And he's got a bunch of beautiful girlfriends and a mm -hmm. wife, a beautiful wife, and they're all cool and everybody's happy. and. 
you know, and it's the kind of life that a lot of people dream of but don't believe is possible. Right. And because uh, they don't have the balls to, to face the consequences of their face own Face the consequences honesty. or challenge the shame. Right. You know, and, and I think, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that I've been dealing with throughout my career is just the, the degree to which people are shamed sexually for being different yeah um you know your listeners can't hear it but you know i you you can't hear me having one hand but i was born with one hand sounds like a cone that's right yeah what is the sound of one what is the sound of one hand clapping right Right. which is really a joke about masturbation um (laughs) (laughs) um but I, you know, I grew up as a guy who was picked out, you know, by other kids, and I moved around a lot in you know, military family, and so whenever I moved, I'd, I'd be the different kid, and I'd have to get in fights, and I'd always be shamed for being different. Right. And now we are shaming people for being sexually different. We're, we're shaming people for liking sex more than we think they should, liking a certain kind of sex that we don't think is right, you know, not being monogamous or not being heterosexual or, or you know, being too kinky. And uh, I think it, it is people's right to have those moral values. But the problem I have is when mental health clinicians and therapists are invoking or using those as a way of kind of saying what's healthy or not. Right. And, right. and unfortunately, you know, the, the idea of monogamy as the ideal has been held up by therapists around the world. And it turns out, you know, it doesn't work that way. Not just the ideal, the standard, the, yes. the, the sort of normal behavior. So everything else is pathologized, yeah. as you say, and has been for a long time. And, you know, that's obviously the, one of the main points of Sex at Dawn, that it's an outgrowth of mm-hmm. agriculture and all this kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier talking about the absence of sort of... Uh, like well-rounded uh, male mm-hmm. role models, mm-hmm. and it, it often I think about the creep. The word creep, it's yeah, creepy. It's such a. It's. I mean, I, this is going to sound like you know first world problems. You know, a couple of white guys complaining about how hard they have mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but it is it. Creep is a nasty thing. I mean, cougar is so much nicer than old yeah, creep. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what would you yeah. rather be, a sexy older woman right, or, or right. A, like a leering dude who drools on his shirt and you know yeah. flashes little girls? It's weird. Yeah, Amer- I, America. If you spent time outside of the U.S., mm-hmm. yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, I come to the U.S. and it's it's really striking. Like I was talking to someone about this the other day. Like in Spain, there are kids everywhere out in the street playing mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. you're sitting in a cafe the you know soccer ball goes by whatever and it's normal to interact with other people's kids here yeah you, you touch another person's kid in the park and and you know yeah. you might get arrested it's so strange oh, yeah I mean, there are states where they're passing laws against single men being able to be in a park or a playground right without without kids and, and yeah it, it I have I have kids and and we've noticed that if you're filming you know your kid doing a performance or something, other people get nervous about you potentially filming their kid too, and 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 people are like, well, do you have permission to film those other kids? <laughs> like you're gonna go home and what jerk off to your kid's school play or it's, something? I, what it's is bizarre. It? There's just this this huge fear base. Yeah. Yeah, this this country. So, okay, you've been working on this stuff for a long time. Where 
is this all just Puritan bullshit? Because it seems to be getting worse in one part of the country and much better in others. I mean, and when I say yeah. part, I don't necessarily mean right. geographic, but... You know, in Portland and San Francisco, it's yeah. all about acceptance of the differences you're mm -hmm. talking about. And then you've got, you know, I, actually, I was just in Utah over the weekend presenting on porn. And, you know, I made it out alive. I didn't get tarred and feathered. I was really kind of worried about, you know, about it, you know, presenting on pornography in a non-shaming, non-pathologizing way to a large group of Mormons. And Didn't they just propose a law? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they just proposed a law declaring pornography as a public health That's crisis. What it was, yeah. And <clears throat> even though they are a state that has prohibited, you know, comprehensive sex education, um, that has huge drug overdose issues, has huge poverty poverty issues, um, they're identifying porn as the public health issue. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, yeah, it's one of the things that I'm seeing is that there is kind of a polarization in, in our society around sex and We've got one side that is becoming very sex positive and, and very accepting, and then we've got another side, but like North Carolina and the transgender bathroom issues, that are becoming just overwhelmed with panic. And they are seeing the world change. They're seeing sexuality change. They're seeing their kids being able to access information on the, on the internet about sex in a way that they can't control, and they're terrified about it. Um, now, one of the things, though, that I think is, is, is hopeful is that there was a study with religious teens who said that they view not recycling as more sinful than watching porn. Hmm. And I think that's awesome. So that was in Utah? No, uh, that was actually a study that was presented in, in I want to say, North Carolina at, a, at a, com a, a religious conference about about pornography. And the religious folks are really nervous about that because what it means is that they're not getting through to the teens about scaring them about porn. Um, what I look at it as meaning is, oh good, those kids are going to save the world. They're going to recycle and not give a shit about porn, but still be religious and believe in God. And I think that, you know, that's cool. Mm. I think that the there is so much change happening that we can't keep up and people are really afraid of change. We always have been. Hmm. It's funny though, I mean, when you, when you look at uh, politics, you know, they're all saying, you know, hope and change and change you can believe in and right. change, you know, for the better and change with Hillary and change. Mm -hmm. It's funny because you're right. There is a, a sort of reluctance to change. Maybe uh, maybe that's just the Democrats. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I, Depends the, who's in office. I guess. It's also, you know, change around sex. People people want sex to stay the same. People want sex to but stay... But why? Because people that, aren't, aren't happy. I mean, I don't think most people have a, a sex life that they would consider to be satisfying. But they don't think they should be satisfied. And I think that's that, some of that Puritan mm, ideal, is that they're afraid of pleasure. Right. People are intuitively afraid of sex feeling too good. You know, we, yeah, my, my second book was The Myth of Sex Addiction. And, and one of the things I argue is that people are intuitively afraid of sex because it feels so good. Because they, they know that there have been times in the past when they did or wanted to do something that they knew they shouldn't do when they were horny and turned on. And they can look back and they, they, they think, well, I controlled myself, but I don't trust you as much as I trust myself. And uh. so they think we need to restrict sex in other people because they can't be trusted with it. 
Interesting. Yeah. I would push back a little bit on that and say, as opposed to people, I would say Americans. Because I don't see that same uh, sex phobia in a lot of other cultures. C certainly not in Spain, where I live. Um, there's a much more easy and relaxed relationship with pleasure, which is why I live there, <laughs> essentially, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I think you're right that Americans are very suspicious of pleasure. And... Um, and I think you're right also that there's this, this idea like I, I can handle it, but you can't. Mm -hmm. And so we see that with drug laws, you know, yeah. with, you know, presidents who admit they've used drugs mm -hmm. and yet they maintain the laws against them. Like I, I can't, you know, or, or gun laws too. Right. And although with gun laws, I sort of, I fall into that category. I feel like, you know, when I read, I, I'm sort of in a strange place with gun laws because when I read the st the statistical argument saying you're, you know, the, you're nine times more likely to shoot your partner mm -hmm. than, or you know, whatever, I often think like, yeah, but that's I've never like hit my partner in anger. Yeah, I don't lose my shit to the degree where I would pull out a gun and shoot someone. I know people do, mm -hmm. but that I that's not me. So I don't think that statistic applies to me. Yeah. You know? But that's uh, uh, too uh, much Ayn Rand in high school, I think. <laughs> and Heinlein for me, I'm with you. The the y y some of that plays out with sex and porn, though, because, for instance, you know, there's there's a lot of panic around the risk of sexual violence connected to porn. Right. Right. And um, you know, and the reality is that the research is is actually extremely clear that increased access to porn results in a decrease in sexual violence in societies. Right. Um, but people don't want to hear that message because they they look at porn and they think, well. You know, there's bad stuff in porn. Clearly, that's making people bad. Well, then, then when you look at the people that actually, they're, they're a small group of men who, when they watch violent pornography, it does increase the risk of sexual violence. But those men are men who have high antisocial personality traits. They're psychopaths already, and they're abusing substances. They have misogynistic attitudes towards women, um, and the porn is just one piece of a complicated negative puzzle but it's not all men and we can't actually decrease the risk of violence in those men by taking away porn right you've got to address everything else that that research you mentioned if I remember correctly is most of it from Eastern Europe um, the the research about uh, porn and violence there were some in Eastern Europe it's been replicated in the United States and in Asia now because okay. um, they, they had to look at societies that were getting internet for the first time right? yeah in, in in Eastern Europe now it was funny because a lot of people look at that research and they say well this is just cross-sectional it's just correlational you can't really say what the cause was but there was one Eastern European country that when it broke away from Russia for about five years they had no laws against pornography whatsoever and and um, rates of sexual violence went down. But the society was still very conservative and still very sex negative. Five years later, they finally put laws in place that restricted pornography, including access to child pornography, and uh, rates of sexual violence went up. Hmm. And so the idea is that you know pornography offers an outlet for people in, in some ways that can be healthy. Sometimes those fantasies that we have that are scary, that other people don't want us to have, actually keep us from making bad choices and engaging in those behaviors out in the world. Right. And, you know, you referred earlier to like some people would say, oh, you know, I did something 
or I controlled myself in the throes of sexual mm -hmm. passion, but you might not. I think a lot of people look back, if they're honest, and say there are times I didn't control myself, you that's know, right. in the throes of sexual passion, and you know, that's mm -hmm. why I've got a kid, mm -hmm. right? Or that's why yeah. I'm married to her, and that's why, I, you know, there are a lot of yeah. pivotal moments in oh, life yeah. that happen when you just think, oh, the hell with it. Um, and if I had just stayed home and jerked off, I'd be so much better off. Right yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I wouldn't have gotten this STD. I wouldn't have gotten that girl pregnant. I wouldn't right. have gotten busted, busted picking up the sex yeah, worker. Yeah, or beat you know? up in the yeah. alley where I was right. in the bar, staying yeah, that's too right. late. And you know, and um, the shit we do to try to get laid is incredible. Well, and that's kind of the way we're made, though. I mean, you know, Dan Ariely is this uh, economist who did a study where they sent um, college students home with a plastic wrapped laptop, and he had the kids at answer questions like. What, you know, would you have sex without a condom? Would you spank somebody? Would you let them spank you? Stuff like that. And then he had them answer those questions again while they were masturbating to pornography. <laughs> and, you know, no shock. Yeah. That people were more willing to do these impulsive kind of risky-ish things when they were turned on because that's the way sex works. You do you know? remember if there was a, a difference between men and women in, in that? You know, in that study, I don't believe they looked at females. Oh, um, right, it was just right. it was just males. And, you know, but yeah. sex goggles. You know, when we're turned on, we we kind of do stupid stuff, and that and that's also where then then people get the idea. Well, sex is like drugs. Sex is like alcohol. I call that valley girl science. You know, saying something is like something else really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't help us move the conversation forward. I think we can understand sex as something that affects our judgment, and then we can try and make good decisions around that. Now, some some guys want to get turned on so that they can do things that they wouldn't normally do. Uh, you know, in my first book about um, you know uh, the cuckold hot wife um, lifestyle. There are guys who desperately want to, you know, go down on their wife after she's had sex with another man or with themselves. But then when they're not turned on after they have an orgasm, they're repulsed by the idea. They're just totally turned off by it. And, and I think it's this fascinating example of the way the neurochemicals and just the experience of being turned on helps us to overcome some of those internal barriers. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking with... Um a woman named Sierra Lynch. She's a humiliatrix. I had her on the podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. a couple times, yeah. I think. Um, and we were talking about how her clients, uh, exactly what you just said, that they're getting off on things that when, as soon as they come, they're just like, okay, bye, yeah. bye done. They're out of the, the brain space. And, you know, we were talking about the difference between male and female sexuality. And, and she said, like, I don't think women are like that. I mean, that's the one thing I really notice with these guys. They're turned on, they become different people. Mm -hmm. And then once they come, they're back to their old self again. And you know, whatever, they were drunk with it and now they're completely sober right. 30 seconds later, you know? Now, now, I think it's a fascinating question of, is that, is that because of something about male or female or is it because of, you know, some of the shame and some of the internal, some of the barriers that are put on, you know, uh, men around sexuality and being able to express or experience some of those kind of taboo fantasies? Yeah. I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, if the, the scenario that we present in Sex at Dawn is accurate and there were... 
um, sort of multi multi male mating situations were mm -hmm. relatively mm -hmm. common mm -hmm. in prehistory, then it would make perfect sense that as soon as a guy comes, he's no longer interested and he gets out of the way and you know lets the other guys continue with the woman mm -hmm. who's still into it because women come and they just want more generally. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the, I mean, there's no experimental evidence to prove that that's why men and women evolved these dis different orgasmic capacities, but it fits into that argument mm -hmm. pretty mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Um, hey, while you're on this, you're, you're an expert on this, and I just saw something on the internet the other day. Um, a guy, another guy I've had on the podcast a few times, uh, Thaddeus Russell, He's a historian. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called The Renegade History of, of America or something like that. Um, he was arguing, he's a bit of a, of a he, he likes to troll the internet sometimes and offend everybody as much <laughs> as possible. But um, he, somebody used the term cuck and he said that that was a racist term because mm. it relates um, to uh, black men having sex with white women, white wives. I had never heard that. Well, the, um, the, the term I think he's referring to is bull. If you refer to a, a black, uh, the, the cuckold kind of lifestyle, they talk about black men being bulls and, and they call them white, they're white men, they call bulls too. And, and they're the, they're the guys that are brought in to have sex with the wife while right. the husband watches. Right. Um, I don't think there's a lot of racism in the cuck term. The you know the 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 cuckold term emerges from the cuckoo bird. You know the cuckoo bird is a bird that comes and lays its eggs in the nest of another bird, mm. and then its eggs hatch before the uh, the other species, and then that bird, the the cuckold, the, the cuckoo bird in the uh, in the nest consumes the resources of the other uh, of the other babies, and then even sometimes will push out the other bird. Mm. And so the the the, the, cuck, the, the English kind of nat, natural historians saw this in the 1500s 1600s and said, oh, you know, that's like what it is if a woman has sex with another man and the husband raises that kid unknowingly, then right. he's investing his resources. Right. Um, the the other term that is is actually more accurate but is not used is whittle and the whittle is a knowing cuckold it's the husband who knows his wife is off having sex with other men um, and lets it go most of the cuckold lifestyle today are actually um, practicing whittlery mm. but they you know they're not using the words right and kind of who gives a shit right Right. It, Lady Chatterley's lover was yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Lady Chatterley's lover, you know, the, the disabled guy um, who wants his wife to have, you know, uh, sexual satisfaction and sends her off to be with the gardener. Um, and, you know, if you remember the, you got, you and I are old enough to remember this, the movie Indecent Proposal with Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson and, mm, right. um, and Robert Redford. And Robert Redford pays a million dollars to have sex with Demi Moore. Um, that as I wrote that book, I found that kind of history and that story all over the place, throughout history, throughout fiction. But it's always presented as this kind of terrifying, scary thing that will ruin your relationship, yeah. and then the you know, and then the wife will go off with the other men. The interesting thing is the internet now has allowed men and women. It, it starts with men usually to explore this fantasy. Um, for a lot of the men, it's for a lot of different reasons. It's for, you know, it, it, some of the men, it makes them feel like a king to have other men want their wife. 
um, some men are just impressed and and love the sexual capacity of their wife you know like you mentioned what women can have orgasm after orgasm after orgasm and some men get a vicarious pleasure from seeing their wife have all those orgasms more than they alone can give them well you know my wife's a great dancer she's born and raised in Africa she's like she just comes out of her naturally I'm not we go out sometimes we're in a salsa club some you know good-looking young dude mm -hmm. wants to dance with her I sit at the bar drink a beer watch them dancing we're all happy yeah where's the problem there right there's no there's no problem innate in that inherent in that situation so yeah certainly I can see how uh, you know you apply that to sexuality and mm -hmm. hey salsa dancing isn't so far from sexuality yeah, yeah. sometimes makes me think of that song save the last dance for me uh, you know, there again, <laughs> there that story is. And, and I think that story is really embedded throughout, um, but we've shamed it. I mean, so, right. a lot of Shakespeare, um, you know, Othello and over and over and over again, that story comes up, but it's always presented as this awful, terrible thing. And is it always presented as the woman is not being satisfied by her husband, so he lets her, or is it sometimes that the husbands get gets off on it. Is there ever that angle? I mean, other yeah. oh, yeah. there's that yeah. angle, but so the, you know, the cover of my book, um, Insatiable Wives, it's got this great picture on it, and it, it's a naked woman, and uh, and and it's uh, a painting of a story called Gyges shows his wife to, or Candelis shows his wife to Gyges. Candelis was a Greek king who had a very hot wife, and Gyges was his advisor, and he had Gyges hide in the closet one day and watch his wife undress. Well, the wife found out and went to Gyges the next day and said, look, dude, somebody's going to die for this, either you or the king. And so Gyges and the wife conspired. They killed the king, and Gyges became king. Well, that sucks. Now, the, the funny thing is that um, in the 1800s, uh, the term candleism from, can from Candelese the King was coined to describe men who like to show their wives naked to other men. Huh. Nowadays, we've got this all over the place because how many guys do you know who carry around naked pictures of their wife or girlfriend and show it to their buddies? Right. And right. that is candlism. Right. Um, it is guys getting off on, hey, look how hot my wife is. Aren't I? Aren't I a stud that I've got this hot, sex, hot, sexy wife? Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Crazy stuff. Okay. So let's let's jump to the other side here. Yeah. Now we're talking about pornography, and I know a lot of people listening to this, mothers, fathers, are thinking. And, and, you know, I don't have kids, so I don't really need to think about this much, but I would be concerned. I've seen some stuff on the Internet I wouldn't want my kids to see, for sure. Um, is there no legitimate criticism? Is there no legitimate point to be made that, you know, seven-year-olds watching, you know, choke, throat-fucking, there's something really wrong there? There is some concern, but it's really overblown in the social dialogue. Um, there are a couple of studies where they've looked longitudinally at teen exposure to porn and having seen porn explained only one percent of the variance in those kids behavior over time and and that included getting in, involved in drugs or alcohol or relationship dating violence or sexual violence or things like that you know what did explain things well things like poverty and education and health care and mental health and right. family environment so unfortunately I think that right now people are focused on 
um, the porn. Well, like, like in Britain right now, there's this panic in the United Kingdom with a very conservative government over the impact of porn on kids. Well, what I like to say is, look, I'll make a deal with you. As soon as we have ensured that all kids have a healthy family environment, have good health care, have good education, and the, the effects of poverty are minimized, then we can deal with porn. But until then, we're just sh chasing this kind of paper tiger. It's a big distraction. Now, on the other side of it, though, I will say that I see young men and young women as well who are learning about sex from porn and they're learning bad habits because porn makes it look easy. You know, like anal sex. Porn, you just, you know, you just jump in. It doesn't show all of the lubrication, all of the prep, all the relaxation, all the negotiation that is required. Um, we need people to learn that that stuff is required for good sex. They're not going to learn it in porn. Now, where should well, they and, learn it? And that some people just aren't into anal that's sex. That's right. And that's completely acceptable. And you need to be able to negotiate that. But right. we're not teaching people that in sex education. Right. If they're getting sex, sex education at all. Yeah. And, and, and the, the, the way we fix this issue, the way we fix this issue is to prophylactically vaccinate kids against the fantasy of sex by helping them understand what real sex is. But in America, you know, we're so fucking scared to talk to kids about sex. We, you know, yeah. we're scared about what will happen if they see a nude person. Did you see recently, just in the last few weeks, a woman... Um was teaching a sex ed class and she got fired for using the word vagina. Yeah, yeah. Vagina. Yeah. Now, I th she was like, she was a retired, I think, science teacher and she came back. I don't think she was teaching a sex ed course, but she like mentioned something. Or about it was a, like Georgia yeah. O'Keefe. Yeah. She was talking about Georgia yeah. O'Keefe, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 It's just wild. You know, and then like in Colorado, um, there's a whole uh, school of kids that were sexting each other. They had made a game out oh, of it. Oh, I saw that. That's it was right. like the whole class. It was, the, right? it was the whole school. It was like the most popular kids in the school. Yeah. The whole football team, like a championship right, football team. Right. And they had made like a Pokemon game out of it where you got more <laughs> points by having naked pictures of more popular kids. And this is still going on where the, the state attorney general is trying to figure out, are they going to charge all those kids as sex offenders? Because in Colorado, you can consent to have sex at age 16, but you can't have a naked picture of yourself until you're 18. That's, <laughs> that's child pornography. And then if you send it to somebody, right. you're violating distribution of child pornography laws. Right. Yeah. And you're now a sex offender, in yeah. some cases, for life. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, a few years ago, after, shortly after Sex of Dawn came out, I, I was contacted by a guy who was making a documentary about his own life. He was late 20s. And um, it was the film was called American Sex Offender. Mm -hmm. And he, he wanted mm -hmm. to do a Kickstarter to raise mm -hmm. money for it. Mm -hmm. So he asked me if I'd be willing to be interviewed um, so that he could use some of that footage for the Kickstarter to sort of show like their authors who are willing, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever, to lend some legitimacy. And his story was so compelling that I agreed to sit for an interview and uh, we met in L.A. And his story was he was literally an altar boy in Texas and um, Kevin something. Um, and uh, he had just turned 18, virgin, and he met uh, online a girl who was like 15 and a half, who was sexually active, who lived somewhere nearby. And she invited him over one day when her mother was at work. He went over, 
they were having sex, mother comes home, finds them, calls the cops. Mm -hmm. Okay? Completely consensual. And he was not sentenced to prison, um, but he was convicted of statutory rape and was sentenced to, I think, five years of probation with weekly therapy, group therapy mm -hmm. sessions, where he had to sit in this circle with men who had raped babies and done yeah, horrible, yeah. horrible things. And he had, he was forced to say at the beginning of every session, my name's Kevin, I forced my penis into mm -hmm. a 15-year-old girl who was struggling and unwilling, mm -hmm. and he had to tell yeah. that lie week after week after week. And for the rest of his life, as you said, he's a registered sex right. offender. He has to knock on the doors everywhere he moves and tell people, Anyway, it's so gross. he I mean, died of a heart attack before he uh, got to, he was like 29, he died of a heart attack. It, it is an, I mean, it's a national travesty, and it, like in Louisiana just a couple of weeks ago, a 16-year-old um, girl texted a picture of herself naked to her 18-year-old boyfriend. The 18-year-old boyfriend happens to be black, and he's now being charged as a sex offender. And <laughs> For receiving a text. Yeah, yeah. and the 16-year-old yeah. girl got a misdemeanor little little fine. Yeah. And, Is she um, white? And she's white. Oh. That's right. And so, unfortunately, Man. there's so much racism and there's so much stigma in this. Yeah. Um, you're right. Now, I mean, I, for a lot of my career, I've worked with sex offenders and I've, you know, and I've worked with folks who have done really awful things. Um, and consistently what I find is about half of those folks <clears throat> are guys who have no sex education. They have no social supports. They have no real understanding of their own sexual desires or ability to kind of negotiate it. And then they're isolated and shamed for their sexuality. And yeah. uh, it, it is just it, now um, in recent times, just in the past six months to a year, there have been massive lawsuits filed in many states in the country um, attacking a lot of sex offender registration and requirement laws because they're not helping. Like, you know, th this whole registration thing is just a it, it's a farce. It, it has no positive impact. It has not reduced recidivism at all. And in fact, I've seen cases where it created recidivism because sure. guys were so isolated and intact. Well, they can't get a job and you're, you're stoking rage. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they're in Florida. I was just in Florida a couple of weeks ago and there are these communities in the swamps, hundreds of men living in yeah. these communities because they can't be near schools or anywhere where children are right. so they've sort of congregated in these swamps it's like what a, what a world what are we doing here and and correct me if i'm wrong but i don't know if this is a state by state thing or a national thing but as a therapist if someone comes to you and and admits to any sort of um Pedera pederasty is the desire to have sex with children. Pedophilia is the activity of having sex pedophilia with children. Pedophilia is the disorder, is the fetish. Uh, um, you, you can have pedophilia without ever actually having sex with kids if that is your fixed fantasy. So a pederast is someone who has done it? Yeah, There's some distinction. Yeah, in pederast is kind of an old sort of term um, that really comes from the 1800s. We right. don't use it a whole lot. Pederast was more around, you know, engaging in anal sex. Ah, uh, okay. Um, That's a funny thing, too, how um, sodomy oh, yeah. means all these different all things these that are things. very yeah. different. A blowjob yeah. and anal yeah. sex are both sodomy. And in California... I'm just going to move your mic down a little here. In California right now, um, the law is that if 
a therapist knows that two teenagers are having sex. If the sex involved oral or anal sex, the therapist has to report it to the child abuse hotline. But if the, the sex involved vaginal sex, penis and vagina sex, it's not reportable. So what, what that means is we have laws in place that are forcing therapists to enforce heterosexual requirements. But blowjobs are like... Absolutely, yeah. White bread, come yes. on. They're yeah. the best thing since white bread, <laughs> I might say. Yeah. What's well, interesting how that's the inverse of a lot of Muslim uh, mm -hmm. legal right. Uh, doctrine, right? Where, mm -hmm. I mean, I had this uh, experience with a, a Muslim woman years ago who told me she was a virgin and wanted to learn about sex. And after I got to know her better, I realized that her definition of virgin yeah. and mine were, I mean, she, she strictly speaking, she was like a vaginal virgin, but everything else, forget mm -hmm. about it. And, yeah. and I think that, that's one of the things though that you know, we treat sex as though it's simple, and it's really not. You know, sex is such a complex phenomenon that involves so many different... You know, my head explodes every time I hear people talk about, oh, you know, the dopamine in your brain when you're, when you're watching porn or because of sex. You get addicted to the dopamine or the serotonin. Well, you know, there are hundreds of neurochemicals in your yeah. brain during sex, and it is not simple like that. It's not simplistic, and sex is different for everybody. Right. You know, there are people who get off watching fully clothed people popping balloons. Right, right. And, and, and that is porn to them. Right. And you know, we can't imagine that that, that that looks the exact same as the you know somebody else watching some other kind of porn. And I think we, we have to stop treating sex as though we can explain it black and white, all simple, and we can pass a single law that affects all of this, because it doesn't. Yeah. American society, see, and I piss on American society a lot, and I apologize to my American listeners who sometimes get tired of that, but um, American society seems to be incredibly resistant to, to um, rational argument. You know, for example, the states that allow sex education and condom distribution and have a progressive, you know, the Vermonts of the world mm -hmm, and the Massachusetts, mm -hmm. The, the rates of teen pregnancy are a fraction what they are in Louisiana, Mississippi, you know, these conservative, um, you know, the states that are, are most up in arms and freaked out about pornography, Utah, are the states that have the highest pornography mm -hmm. consumption. Yes. The, the, you know, the highest pornography consumption in the world is Saudi Arabia per yeah. capita. I mean, it's just the, the relationship between trying to deny and repress something and the uncontrolled social destruction that results from that thing is clear. I mean, you look at Holland, you probably read the, the, some of the papers coming out of Holland about the way Dutch parents deal mm -hmm. with teenagers yeah. when they have their first, you know, a teen girl, 15 year old girl has her first boyfriend. The parents invite the kid over for dinner. Mm -hmm. If they like the kid, they invite him to spend the night. They talk about condoms and it's like, oh, well, it's a natural part of life. You know, we'd rather they do it here than, you know, yeah. have to yeah. sneak around. And so what's the, you know, the STD transmission rate and the teen pregnancy rates are minuscule. Yeah. That is all proven so clearly again and again and again. Like, why are we still talking about this shit? It's not, it's like global warming. It's yeah. not a fucking controversy. I think, I think some people 
can't tell the difference between rational thought and their faith-based kind of moralizing. Oh, I mean, I, I, you know, I wish we could have, you know, a blue light and a red light installed in people's forehead, and when they're thinking rationally, the blue light goes on, and then when they're, when they're arguing based on their convictions, the red light goes on. So at least you know what you're dealing with. Right. You know? Well, it's better if they know what they're dealing yeah. with. I mean, it should maybe it should be on their I, hands. I think, well, so that's they, asking stigmata, too much. Yeah, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, and because I deal with this all day long yeah. with people who challenge me as I, you know, as I am challenging people's fear of pornography, fear of sex. Um, they they argue that their experience and their beliefs equate to evidence. Right. You know, the louder they are and the stronger their beliefs, the more right they are. But see, that that gets to the other inverse relationship that has been proven again and again and again that we are ignoring, which is that the people who scream the loudest almost always are fucking hypocrites. Yes. The the moralizing preachers, the you know the the yeah. two guys who were heading Congress when they when Clinton was yes. impeached yeah. for the consensual yeah. blowjob in the White House right. have been now Newt Gingrich was right. fucking someone and his wife is dying in the hospital right, and right, he's banging right. And, uh, and Dennis Astert, yeah. who's like a fucking, you know, yeah. fucking little boys in the gym. Yes. Like, what the hell? Those are the two guys who are right. standing up saying, America can't tolerate this kind of blah, blah. And, you know, the, yeah. the, the preacher who was snorting meth off the hooker's ass. I yes. mean, it just goes on all and on. Of, and I think ultimately all of these guys, you're right. I mean, they're, they're immense hypocrites. But they think that, because, again, we've got to go back. They're looking at themselves and applying it to the external world. They think that the only way they can control their sexual desires is to make the world a safe place where sex is controlled. Mm. And they're wanting us to control them. When they, when they say, mm. oh, you know, we can't let little kids watch porn, we, they're saying, I personally can't watch porn and control myself, so you guys have to control me. Make it illegal because yes. I can't stop myself. That's right. Yeah, well, that's an interesting insight. And yeah, we need to educate sense. them that, hey, dude, the rest of us are not like that. Right. We actually have self-control. Um, well, that's what I was we saying can about... help you now exactly. learn to control yourself. And that's what I was saying about the gun laws earlier. Yeah. It's like, I feel like America is... The laws are made for dumbasses. And, like, I'm not a dumbass. Why right. can't I have something on my driver's license that says not a dumbass? <laughs> like, right under organ donor. Like, organ donor, not a dumbass, yeah. right? There's yeah. a different yeah. set of laws. You should be able to, like, you know, take a test. Yeah, Although, well, it's like, I am it's like a TSA pre-check, you know. I, yeah, exactly. I go through the rigmarole to prove I'm not a fucking terrorist and I don't, my goddamn shoes are not going to explode. <laughs> exactly. And now I don't have to take them off when I go through the thing. Right, Although, right. you know, I, I hope that that guy, Richard Reed, burns in hell. Who's he, oh, he the was, shoe bomber. He was the shoe bomber because that one son of a bitch created more... Inconvenience for more people around the world than almost anybody in history. But see, I don't blame him. I blame the response. Yeah. Because there's always going to be some bullshit like that. There's always that reactionary response. I, you're talking about pre-check. I flew in yesterday, yeah. and I had a, I have TSA pre-check as well. I also have global entry, which is an even more thing for oh, international wow. yeah, travel, yeah. right? Yeah. So, like, I'm a known flyer and all that bullshit. And... So I go through the, the thing, and they pull my bag aside, and there's a, 
uh, a can of some aerosol shit. And the can't let, I can't keep that. And so, I'm like, all right, whatever. And she said, you should know better. And, and I was like, well, hey, school marm bullshit. Like, what are yeah, you right. talking about? Yeah. I said, look, I live in Europe. And in Europe, they haven't worried about liquids in bags for years. Yes. And she said, I said, that's only in America, you know, home of the brave. And she said, uh, well, yeah, but you notice if, a few months ago they had a terrorist attack in Paris. <laughs> that was in a fucking bar, you idiot. God. <laughs> I mean, well, the, you call that thinking? Yeah. Uh. But that's the thing. I mean, we have to pay attention to the money. I think yeah. you, you always got to follow the money. And, oh, and yeah. I think, you know, a lot of this fear of sex, a lot of this fear of terrorism, you know, the fear of sex trafficking right now. Right. It's all driven by money because those fears put money in people's pockets to then combat and fight the fear. Right. You know, like like there's a group it's the war in, on drugs. Same yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. There's a group in Utah called Fight the New Drug, and they're a Mormon-based organization that is a nonprofit that's out there saying, you know, porn kills love, and they're attacking pornography as a new drug. Well, most of their funding comes from the Mormon Church, and most of their leadership are people who were previously fighting the Mormon battle against gay marriage. Mm -hmm. They lost that, and so now they're fighting the battle against porn. Very similar to Harry Anslinger in the 20s, yeah. the head of uh, enforcement against uh, alcohol. Yeah. They legalize yeah. alcohol, and he starts looking, okay, you know, we don't want to lose our jobs, right. so who can we prosecute yeah, let's now? let's go after marijuana. Yeah, Mexicans and blacks. That's right. They're good victims. Yeah. Remember the crack cocaine epidemic? Remember all the crack babies right. that were supposed to overwhelm society? Right. I mean, they, our jails and our hospitals were going to be filled with these crack babies. Didn't happen. But the laws were passed... At, attacking crack cocaine is more addictive and more dangerous and it was mostly blacks and Mexicans, blacks and Hispanics that were prosecuted under those laws. Ultimately this is ultimately most of these fears are really kind of duplicitous. They are ways for the establishment to maintain control. Yeah. By making us afraid. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot is the chicken little story. I don't, you know, the chicken little story, it's really kind of a fascinating thing. That story is over 2,000 years old. Really? The sky yeah. is falling? That, yes, yes. Really? So, this, you know, the, the, and the story changes over the years, but, you know, little, little Henny Penny thinks that the sky is falling and runs around and tells everybody, oh, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. And then Fox says, well, come in my cave and I'll protect you. And so Henny Penny and all the friends go into the cave and then the fox eats them. And the message is people who are telling you to be afraid in ambiguous circumstances are probably exploiting you. They're using that fear to manipulate you. And I think it's amazing that that story is 2,000 years old because it says this is part of the human condition. When somebody is telling you to be afraid of something with relatively ambiguous subjective evidence, we all need to learn to take that with a grain of salt, a big old grain of salt, and understand that these people are trying to manipulate you. Yeah. Yeah, and and that is something that is so central to American culture right now yeah. at this historical moment. It's amazing. The, the amount of... I mean, I, 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 in a hotel, you just put on CNN, and mm -hmm. it's all, it's all drugs. It's yeah. all, you know, are you you suffering from this? Are you suffering from that? Are you suffering from the other thing? And I saw a thing the other day that was, it was about um, 
uh, irritable bowel syndrome, mm-hmm. if you suffer, which is generally stress-induced, right? But they don't talk about that. It's some pill. Yeah, yeah. And at the end, you know how they go through all the, like, this can cause this and there's little side effects. Yeah. One of the side effects was um, intestinal upset. <laughs> <laughs> they got the perfect drug there. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, look at SSRIs, you know, um, uh, antidepressant drugs. That It just so happens one of the major side effects is creating impotence, erectile dysfunction, right. and in, impairing orgasm. And, yeah. so, you know, I've had so many patients that I work with that, you know, they're, they're on these meds, and, and yeah, it kind of reduces their depression, but it takes away their ability to enjoy sex. Yeah. And, and, and the healthcare industry is perfectly fine with that. Yeah, yeah, sex just really isn't that important. You really shouldn't be enjoying sex that much. Right. Yeah, I, uh, a friend of mine explained to me that, well, actually, it was my wife, who's a psychiatrist. We were talking about antidepressants, and she pointed out that people think antidepressants, and you know, given the name, you would think this, decrease depression. They take away the sadness. But she said what they do is they take away the lows and the highs. It's just like compressing an audio file. It just reduces everything to a more restricted bandwidth. Mm -hmm. So you just don't give a fuck. Right. You don't give a fuck about the low and, you know, yeah, Yeah. comfortably numb. It's hard. It's hard not to look at that stuff and think about, you know, Soma and think about, you know, 1984 and the the drugs and the way that you know governments use media and medication and unfortunately mental health to control the outliers and to bring everybody into the norm it's one of the things that i'm deeply sad about with my profession as a psychologist is that you know psychology and mental health we too often become tools mm. of the power to enforce compliance. And right. you know, I mean, it just came out that the American Psychological Association was involved with you know, allowing psychologists to participate in torture. Right. And uh, you know, in 2002, I turned down a job with the CIA um, to be a psychologist for them. And I didn't know at the time that I would have been one of those psychologists. And You'd be rich now. Well, yeah, but but what morals would I have left? And the sad thing is that, you know, I look back and I was a young guy at the time. I don't think I would have had the confidence or the moral integrity to push back at that. Mm. I would now, but back then as a young, naive psychologist believing in my country and we were afraid because of 9-11, would I have gone along with it? Probably. And I think that we need to learn those lessons so that we don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just uh, going to close this window. There's some, the, the microphones pick up so yeah, much pick more. Up everything. Yeah, okay, there's a vacuum cleaner out in the hallway, I think. Yeah. Um, good. What, what am I missing here? I was uh, insatiable wives, the myth of sex. So you, is, does sex addiction exist? Is no, it all I, a myth? I argue that um, it's all, uh, what we call sex addiction is really just um, symptoms of other conditions. Either somebody's just a selfish asshole who is cheating. I mean, one of the the important things about that is 90 to 95% of alleged sex addicts in the United States, now this is only a United States condition, Mm. there are no sex addiction treatment facilities in the rest of the world. Um, The... 90 95% of, of sex addicts in America are white men. Half of them are men who make over. Half of these men who are called sex addicts are men who make over $85,000 a year. 
This is a privileged mm. issue. You know, it, it is it is a privileged disorder. This to is someone get in who for too much sex. Yeah, this and and also this is someone who doesn't want to get fired for some fuck up right. at work or get divorced. That's right. For, so they say, you know what? I have sex addiction. I'm going to get therapy. Right. And you know, then give me a second chance. Yeah. So two yeah. fucking days ago, Ozzy Osbourne, you know, Sharon Osbourne comes out and says she's not going to divorce Ozzy, but she caught him cheating with his hair person or his makeup person or something like that, and she's sending him to sex addiction treatment in right. Mississippi. Right. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a ritual. It, it's a ritual. It's a stage show. It's a kabuki stage show. Oh, I'm going to pretend to be, you know, humble and learn my lesson and keep my penis in my pants. And unfortunately, you know, it, the mental health industry has kind of played along with that by pretending that sex addiction is real. Yeah. You know, gay and bi men are also at three times the risk of being called sex addicts because right. Again, masculine sexuality and especially homosexual sexual activity is seen as unhealthy. And in it now, it's not by accident that the idea of sex addiction was born in the early 1980s at the same time as AIDS. You know, when people were mm. afraid of excessive sex and afraid of secret sex and especially afraid of gay male sex, yeah. that now it could kill you. And all of a sudden there was this magical disease that was, you know, created where we will treat it. And they treat it with 12-step treatment, which is not treatment. It's just social support. And it's based on shaming. It's based on control. Mm. It's not based on personal understanding. I work with these guys. I work with all those guys. And what I do is I teach people to understand themselves, to make personal choices from a place of self-awareness and self-understanding, integrity, responsibility, and negotiation. You know, kind of like your Uncle Dan coming from a place of radical honesty about oneself so that you negotiate a relationship based upon your needs and if that relationship can't meet the needs that are really important to you, then you are faced with a choice. Do I stay in this relationship? or not. Do I give up those needs to be in the relationship or do I go elsewhere? We're right now we have a we have a situation where you know guys are told and women too are told, well, just kind of pretend your needs aren't that important. Just kind of put those things aside. Um, and be happy in the relationship. The relationship is the ideal. That monogamous connection should give you everything you need. And then when those people end up unhappy, they feel like there's something wrong with them. Right. Yeah, it's their own fault. Somehow. Yeah, 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 and then they can be medicated and and get their irritable bowel syndrome and yeah, uh, yeah. right, yeah, yeah, and, and again, I mean, it's that it's that bring everybody into the norm, bring, you know, bring those outliers both high and low to the middle, and let everybody live safe and comfortable in the middle. Well, the reality is, you know, Einstein didn't live in the damn middle. You know, he was I, a bit of a womanizer, too. Absolutely. Yeah, he changed the world. You know, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan probably fathered, you know, as many as 1,000 to 10,000 children throughout Mongolia and China. And there are few people in Asia now who, cannot tr who genetically don't relate back to Genghis Khan somehow. Um, Are you holding up Genghis Khan as a role model? Is he a sexual? <laughs> it's my Uncle Dan and Genghis Khan at this point. Uncle Dan and Genghis Khan. <laughs> You're you know? on thin ice with Genghis Khan. I, I, but we have to recognize that sexuality, you know, goes along with these highs. You know, Jack Kennedy, John F. Kennedy once said to the president of France, "If I don't have sex with a different woman every day, I get headaches." <laughs> 
Now, you know, if he said that today, we would we would be calling him a sex addict like Bill Clinton and sending him to sex addiction. Good thing he said it to the president of France. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah it's a sympathetic year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Genghis Khan. Let's just uh, you know be honest. Genghis Khan was raping those women. Absolutely. You know? So we're not we're not oh, advocating yeah. that. Of no, course. he was he was forcing he was using sexuality to force his will and to impose you know his genetic you know inheritance right. on other societies and other regions. But would he have been as successful a leader if he didn't also have that high sex drive? Who knows? We can't yeah. separate these two. Right. And we shouldn't assume that that high sex drive is inherently negative. Now, if we... I mean, there are lots of medications out there. We talked about one, you know, the SSRIs and the antidepressants that they're giving now to people to bring them back to the norm. A friend of mine has patented a technology that electromagnetically can upregulate or downregulate libido. And, you know, it's like a headband that goes on people's brains and can, can stimulate portions of the brain to increase or decrease libido. Now, it, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the U.S. Army was putting, um, you know, uh, pseudo-medicine in people's uh, food to try and suppress their libido. Mm. It didn't work. But do you think people will use this? For instance, religious parents whose kid is masturbating, do you think they'll put this headset on the kid? Better than a penis cage. Slightly. Or, or, or circumcision. Or, or cornflakes. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Why, that's why most men in the United States are circumcised, because yeah. Kellogg thought it was a way to prevent masturbation. Right. It didn't slow me down. Right. Yeah. No. It's crazy. People think it's, it has to do with um, medical uh, necessity or uh, cleanliness or whatever. It's right. just a cultural bullshit thing that we do. Yeah. 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 Bizarre. I think, I mean, ultimately what I think we need to do is you know, become more accepting and aware of the diversity of sex. Some people like lots of sex, some people don't like much, much sex at all. And that's the way humans work, that we have this this range, we have this large, you know, variance across people. Some people are really kinky, some people really just, just like vanilla sex. And, and it's all okay because it's all part of the range. Right. The way we make that healthy is to have people come from a place of self-understanding, negotiation, respect, and integrity. Right. We don't make sex healthy by telling people what kind of sex to have. Right. Well, that sounds like a really good place to end this. That's, uh, Absolutely. You, you summed it all up there beautifully. Where can people find out more about your work? So I'm, you know, I'm on Twitter at uh, Dr. David Lay. My last name is L E Y. Uh, you know, with the last name Lay, I had the choice of being a sex doctor um, or a politician involved in a sex scandal. Um, or but I figure, something in Hawaii. That's right. Or something in Hawaii with the flowers. Um, but I, you know, I chose sex doctor. So at Dr. David Lay on Twitter, and then my new book, uh, um, Ethical Porn for Dicks, comes out this fall, and uh, it's on Amazon, as are my other books. Did you uh, have any trouble getting that title past your publisher? I was a little worried that we were going to, but um, uh, they loved it. And and the, the neat thing is that young people, especially folks in their 20s, they just eat it up because they love it as a, it's in their face. Right. You know, it's controversial, it's provocative. And, and, and like, yeah. like, there's some bestseller, Go the Fuck to Sleep or something that's yeah. been on the bestseller right, list right, for right, yeah. a year. Yeah. yeah. Apparently I, things yeah. have changed in yeah. publishing. I, I mean, I was on a radio show in, in Salt Lake City a couple of days ago 
ago, and uh, and I was like, well, can you say the name of my book? And they said, yes, you can say ethical porn for dicks, but you can't say he put his dick in her vagina. <laughs> I was I saw something the other night. I think it was the Daily Show or some some TV show, and they the guy whoever was talking said the word asshole a few times, and they bleeped out. Hole. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like yeah. ass right. bleep, ass bleep. Like, wait a minute. Yeah. Hole's not a bad right, word. Right, right. If anything is, it's and ass. I think it's I hysterical it. the way that you know now the world is being forced to confront some of these ludicrous rules. Like, like you know, there's this person who's you know transitioning from male to female and and is posting pictures on Facebook of when do my breasts become obscene? Right. That's At fantastic. what point do my yeah. male breasts yeah. have to be bleeped out? Did you see that somebody had a thing not too long ago where they had uh, they were photoshopping men's nipples onto women's yeah, breasts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like you know, now what are you going to do now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you remember this. Sh- you know, uh, there was a, a TV show a few years ago with Adam Carolla. You know, and um, they had a guy come on who had lost a bet. Um, for a hundred thousand dollars with his friends that he wouldn't get breast implants and so he had breast implants but you know he was not transgender at all it was just a bet but he showed his breast and i think it was on comedy channel and they bleeped out his breasts was it the man show yes the man show that was it yeah right yeah and they bleeped them out they bleeped them out so he's a man but the breasts are female apparently the breasts are somehow obscene now because they look more female what yeah, you know, I I uh, I got back to Barcelona a couple of weeks ago after having been away for years, living in Portland in Vancouver and the west coast of the U.S. And uh, I was walking down the street and uh, walked by this department store, and they were changing the displays in the window. And I looked at the window, and I realized that the mannequins in Spain have erect nipples. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just thought. God damn, I'm glad to be back. Yeah. The mannequins have erect nipples. In America, they don't have any nipples. Right, right. They're desexualized. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have heads, but they had erect nipples. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, very, very strange. And, and, you know, you see all these ads in Spain of women breastfeeding babies, right, yeah. and they're beautiful women, and their breast is right there, and the baby's happy, and it's all healthy, and mm-hmm. it's, it's strange. Such a strange world. And then, you know, on the other hand, I remember being in India, where public breastfeeding is completely acceptable and normal, but the culture is extremely repressive sexually yeah. these days. So it, it, it plays out. It's kind of like what you were saying about individual variation. Mm-hmm. Cultural variation mm-hmm. is all over the place as well. You know, and you were talking about how we, we, we think we know what sex means, and we talk about it as if it's defined, That's you right. know. Um, but one of the things I often come across is homosexuality people ask me like you know you know for a transcultural cross-cultural um uh, definition or or comment on homosexuality and one of the things i point out is we don't know what homosexuality is you know you think it's simple oh it's two people of the same sex having sex well what if as in Papua New Guinea, there are mm-hmm, tribes mm-hmm. where they believe that the essence of masculinity is contained in semen. So the boy, young boys who want to grow up to be the fiercest and most macho warriors 
suck as much dick as possible so right. they'll ingest as much masculinity so they can grow up to be big strong masculine men like what is that yeah. right or like a woman i treated a few years ago who had been married 25 years had only ever had sex with her husband but she never had an orgasm with her husband unless she was fantasizing about having sex with a woman uh, is she right. straight because she's only ever had straight sex? Right. Is she gay because she's only really aroused by gay sex? Right. Or is she bisexual because she's in between? Yeah. The definitions don't really match anymore. And right. And one of the things I'm really excited about right now, actually, is that the, the concept of sexual fluidity mm. is really, you know, Lisa Diamond and Meredith Shivers and right. Mike, you know Mike Bailey's lab in, in Chicago, they're doing really remarkable research now showing the degree to which sexual fluidity, sexual response, sexual arousal is is a varying concept both in people and across their lives. So that we're, you know, I love that young kids nowadays are coming up and saying, well, I'm pansexual, or I'm genderqueer, or I'm gender fluid, or I'm omnisexual, or, or all of these terms yeah. that are really forcing society to realize, hey, sex and gender are not as simple as we would like to pretend. Yeah. What's going on in Japan? Are you, are you up to date on the whole, uh, what are they called, vegetable boys? Or yeah, like, the, 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 the people that are kind of giving up sex. They're and just saying completely checking yeah. out, yeah. Well, they're checking out, and they are saying, um, in many cases, I prefer to masturbate to porn. Oh. And you know, part of that dialogue, and, and the same thing is in the movie Don John, um, is that porn and some of the sex that has changed now is changing economics of sex. Right. It's changing the value of the commodity of sex because now you don't have to work as hard to have a relatively cheap, easy simulacrum of sex, which is masturbating to pornography. And so there are people who are saying, look, sex is just kind of too much work. Yeah. And now it's challenging societies of saying, wait, no, 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 no. We're supposed to be using sex to lead you along, to control you. I mean, mm. one of the fascinating things is that, you know, the question of why societies gave up polygamy, you know, is that polygamous societies where one man with multiple women have higher rates of violent crime and more instability in young men because the young men don't have a wife or a girl at home to take care of mm. in order so that they can keep having sex. And so societies have used sex as a way to control people, especially men, and control women as well. Now, yeah. Society now the value of of sex is changing, and as a result, the economics of the willingness to invest in sex is changing, and it's having all these huge repercussions. Which ultimately, I think, is kind of good because, like you, I guess, I I, re, I resent you know these these governments, these corporations who are exploiting us and using fear and sex to control us. Yeah, I read something, uh, I can't remember where it was or what companies it was referring to, but it was revealed that this major company had, in the HR department, kept track of who was married and who wasn't because they knew that the people who were married and had kids would be 
uh, less well, yeah. more stable and less likely to push for a raise. And, ah, yeah. You know what I mean? The negotiation with them yeah. could go on a different track than people wow. who would walk away, right? So they like to have the family man. They like mm -hmm. to have you vulnerable with a nice big mortgage and in debt and, you know, mm -hmm. stuck in the system. It's a leash around your neck. That's true. What do you think about, since we're talking about the future of sex, what do you think about... Um, Sex uh, models, you know, the, what are they, the robots and the robots, all that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, there is a group out there now for the ethical treatment of robots <laughs> arguing against the sexual exploitation of robots. <laughs> and it's just like, Jesus Christ, don't you people have enough to do? I mean, now, now you're fucking worried about exploiting robots? The hell? Um, That's funny. I, I, you know, I, I think that... There are people who will be interested in those kinds of, you know, sex robots, and there are people that you know have the silicone, the high, the high-value silicone sex dolls now. Right. Um, but it's always going to be a small percentage, and those people would have would have been interested in some other little sexual deviation. Mm. That and and that ultimately is the message that I give to people that are afraid of how technology is changing sex. Is that look every every time this happens, people get afraid that sex is going to go away. Like when the bicycle was invented, people were worried that bicycle seats were going to turn all women into insatiable lesbians. Oh, oh, if it had. Uh, yeah, if only. And <laughs> so people are always, like in the 1850s, the inventor of the post box in uh -huh. London, the postmaster general of London, you know, created the post box where you could put mail in the box and get mail out of the box and never interact with the postman. And they were worried that that was going to result in an epidemic of female infidelity because now women could correspond with strange men without their families or the postman knowing who they were talking to. Um, people are always afraid that technology and social change is going to change sex and change the sex rules. Well, the internet really kind of has. Yeah. But it doesn't change it that much because ultimately, you know, sex today, it if I was fucking my wife and a caveman from 20,000 years ago walked up and saw me, he'd know what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the actual act hasn't changed much, but the, but the social context certainly has. And the economic value of it has. Yeah, I mean, like people on Tinder now, I've got a couple friends on Tinder, and like every time I, I hang out with them, he's with a different woman, and they're right. all great, you know? And, but I, I do worry because you know, he goes through women like a rock star, mm -hmm. and he's sort of become impossible to please. Yeah. Which you know, I don't know where that ends. Uh, you know, and I because I see patients that 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 come in and they're looking for a relationship because they're just desperate to not be alone, and they create these profiles on the dating websites of the ideal person, and it's become like shopping on Amazon, yeah. where you know I want a tall, blue-eyed, dark-haired, muscular guy. Well. You might actually end up, end up being happier with a short, dark-haired, kind of pudgy guy who is a really good husband and treats you well. But because people now have this shopping kind of consumer idea, mm, right. we've turned getting a relationship into a consumer kind of ideal. Right. And I think that I think that is something that defeats the purpose. But we we need to have conversations about that to increase people's understanding. 
We can't change that dynamic by trying to ban those apps or ban that process. Now, people try. They're like, oh, you know, you're going to get STDs from, those, from Tinder because people that use Tinder are at higher risk of getting STDs. Well, they're just trying to scare you to stop you using it instead of trusting people to have an intelligent conversation and to make healthy decisions for themselves. I think people can make, most people can make healthy good decisions, especially if they've got the driver's license that says not a dumbass. <laughs> exactly. Let's get on that, Obama. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through amazon.com or you know someone who does, please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design t-shirts in Thailand, and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at carseyblanton.com C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because, ladies and gentlemen, you're gonna die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day 
to the ground. 